Welcome to Crime Soup Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Carter. And I'm Hannah. And this week, we're going to be talking about Sean Great and the trail of violence and misogyny he left in his path or in his wake. I don't know. Jane Doe, who is being left anonymous because of the nature of the crimes committed against her, explains in whispers that she's at the address 4th Street Laundromat and that a man named Sean Great was responsible for abducting her. The phone call lasted 20 minutes while the police tried to find her. I'm going to play a few parts for you. If you want to listen to the whole phone call, it's on YouTube, but I'm just going to play little bits and pieces. Nine one one. what is the address to your emergency? By the Street Laundromat. What is it? Fourth Street Laundromat. What's the problem? I think I abducted. Who abducted you? Sean Green. You said John Green? Sean Great. Where's he at now? Asleep. Where's he sleeping at? In the bedroom. In what bedroom? There's two houses right by the laundry street, and it's in one of those houses. But you're at the laundromat? No, I'm, I'm in the bedroom with them. So Jane Doe outlines that she's in the room with her sleeping abductor, and she stole his phone and called 911. The dispatcher asks if Jane can leave the building, but she explains that Sean has rigged the door to make noise if she opens it, and that he would wake up. Is there any way you can get out of the building? I don't know without waking him, and I'm scared. Is there a bathroom in the, the house? Well, his bedroom is closed, and he made it so it would make noise. But if you told him you had to go to the bathroom, he would do something to you? Yeah, because he had me tied up. Are you tied up now? Yeah, but I kind of freed myself. Is he in the same room with you? Yes. Is it his phone you have? Yeah. Are they on the way? Yeah, we have officers we're sending. Okay, if, you, if you're worried, you don't have to talk. You can just set the phone down, okay? And and the next part of the phone call is Sean Great has a taser with him in the room. And as Jane Doe tries to get off of the bed, she accidentally sets it off and it wakes Sean up a little bit. And so she she has to put the phone down and hope that he goes back to sleep. In the full phone call, you can hear Sean kind of wake up and say the victim's name. And they they always bleep out the victim's name. So you hear a bleep because he rolled over and asked her name and she stays dead silent trying to diffuse the situation. He doesn't realize she's on the phone yet. I think very surprisingly, Jane Doe kept her wits about her and remained very, very calm considering the situation. Like she sounds calm. In, in the call. I don't know if, like, do you think that as well when you listen to it? Yeah. And like, my heart's pounding just even thinking about it. I can't even imagine being actually in her shoes and like, there's a violent man feet away from me. And I 
can't wake him up and the door is rigged and I'm trying to get someone to come help me. But yeah, I don't know. I think I would like personally, I think I'd lose it. Like, I'd be like, just please, I need one thing to fucking go my way right now or else I'm going to die. Like, please. Um, But it kind of comes where Jane has already explained that she cannot open the door because if she does, he rigged it so that it would make a lot of noise and that he would wake up and he would overpower her and that she's scared, right? And she doesn't know how close the police are. So she wants to wait until the police are close before she even tries to go out because why would she put herself in that position? Every um, second matters. Exactly, exactly. But I'll, I'll play this this part of the the nine one one call. Is there a padlock on the bedroom door, or is it just a regular lock? No, no, I don't even I don't even know if it's locked. It's not so. Can you get up and see if you can get out? Afraid of waking him. If I knew the cops were right there, I would do it. If you think you can get out, you need to get out. Not unless they were right here. She, so the dispatcher says, if you think you can get out, you need to get out and kind of like a snippy tone. And Jane says, not unless they're right here, he would hear me and he's strong. You know what this reminds me of? Huh? This reminds me exactly of women when they talk about how they're in an abusive relationship and people are like, well, why didn't you just leave? Yeah. They're like, well, if you can get out, then you need to get out. <laughs> it's and not that like- simple. <laughs> And this dispatcher's like, is there a door? And she's like, yes. And they're like, have you tried opening it? Oh, my God. That's exactly what it is. They're like, just just leave, lady. Like, if you can get out, just get out. But she's already explained why it's dangerous for her to do that. Yeah. Okay. And so we're, we're approaching the point in the call where I'll let you listen, but Jane can hear the officers approach the house. And like she said, all the curtains are closed, so she can't see out of the windows, but she, she hears the officers arrive and approach the house. And so she finds the courage because she can hear them to open the bedroom door and she, she tries to make her way to the back door, but she discovers that Sean has removed the doorknob and she can't get outside. Oh, There's no God. way for her to get outside. And like a she, she starts to panic because she now put herself in a really vulnerable position. And Sean, as far as she knows, hasn't woken up yet, but she's, she already made noise getting out of the room. So he could wake up at any time and she's just waiting at the back door. And the police are in between like a fence. They're on the other side of the fence. They, they went to the wrong side of the house. So they don't know exactly where she is. And she hears them getting closer. And then all of a sudden they get far away again. And she's like, where are they? Where are they? Where'd they go? Is she on the phone this whole time? She's on the phone the whole time. This is like a horror movie. It is a horror movie. Okay, I can hear him. You hear him? Do you think you can get out? Are you out of the bedroom? It doesn't have a doorknob. You need to push. The door doesn't have a doorknob? Can you see them? They said push the door. Are they on the other side of the door? You said have you guys push the door. There's no doorknob there. Just push it. I think no. Can you get out of the bedroom? And the door is Can you hear anybody right now? She heard the side door open. I think no. Out of the bedroom. 
further out. Okay, can you get to the door where you can see out? Huh? Can you get out of the house? It's locked. Are you at the door? Yeah, I am. She's at the door. You're on the door to the right hand side of the house. She's at the door on the right side of the house. She got out of the bedroom. Is there a window there? Yeah, I'm looking out and they tell me to come back. Hurry, hurry. She said to hurry up and come back. Yeah, they can see me if they come through it. The door is locked. No, the bedroom door had no door handle. This was she is locked. She can't get out. Can you unlock the door at all? Okay, so miraculously, they discover her and they get her out of the house. Jane runs out of the house completely naked and she's been held hostage with Sean for over two days. Uh, police are able to take Sean into custody without an altercation. Uh, he slept through, through the whole thing, which is extremely lucky. Um, and they immediately take him into the station for questioning. So at first, police believed they were dealing with like the straightforward case of Jane Doe's abduction and sexual assault. But soon after the interrogation started, Sean began offering information that indicated that he had done this before. So I'm going to outline the interrogation specifically of Sean Great because there's just a lot of information in the interrogation and it's very interesting. And so I'll start by saying one thing that detectives try to do when interrogating like an obvious suspect like this is to establish report. And this usually means like the detective is going to butter him up. They try to make him feel comfortable. They try to frame the situation as less dire than it really is. And it's all really manipulative at its core. Like that's, that's the point is because they're trying to get information out of the suspect. But in cases like this, I think it's what made Sean so comfortable to open up in the first place. Do you have any thoughts on like, I guess, these tactics that police use? I've seen, I've definitely seen it before. Um, One really famous example is in Gabby Petito's case. Whenever Brian Laundrie and Gabby Petito were pulled over driving from Moab, Moab police like pulled them over because somebody called in saying that they saw Brian slapping her. And when police pulled them over, they separated them and a bunch of the officers, I think they had like a female officer talk to Gabby, but then there was like two, like two or three male officers who were talking to Brian and they kept saying things to him like, we know how it goes. We know how women are. I get into fights with my wife all the time, you know, kind of like this thing, like we've been there. We're on your side. Just tell us what happened. And it bothers me, but I do, I understand why they do it because you know, they're, they're kind of playing good cop, bad cop. Yeah. It, I guess it's infuriating in cases like Gabby Petito's case because I don't even know if they were doing it to establish report. I think they were just, I think they were just being misogynistic. Like, I think they just didn't care. And yeah. And how do you know the difference? How exactly. Do you- <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that's what they were doing. It's very possible that that's what they were doing, but I don't know. In cases like this where they're talking to Sean, they're obviously doing it to try and get him comfortable. The male detective is trying to establish, I don't remember his name, that he respects Sean, that they respect each other as men, that they have similar experiences as men, right? And it goes it goes well in the very beginning of the interview. And Sean actually gives this detective a lot of information regarding what he did to Jane Doe. And so the story of how Jane Doe and Sean meet is they met at a community service center called the Croc Center. And the Croc Center is like an extension of the Salvation Army. Um, and they met in late July in 2016. So about two months before the abduction. They would often eat lunch, play tennis, and go on walks together. Uh, Jane says that she began to think of Sean as a goofy but kind older 
older brother, and apparently Sean was interested in something more romantic with Jane, but she turned him down, even refusing to exchange phone numbers with him. And I feel like this is this is proof of how principled she was in her stance. Like she was not interested in Sean, and she probably appreciated the friendship during the days when she was at the Croc Center, but she was not interested in even attempting a relationship of any kind, like outside of that. And so she didn't even want him to have her number. It was either that or she had like a weird feeling about him, which is also like something that could possibly happen. But also Jane was very religious. I think she was very, very Catholic. And so it's possible that that also played a role in her not giving Sean her phone number because she also told police that she wouldn't allow men into her apartment on religious principle. So Sean had just moved to Ashland, Ohio and immediately met Jane Doe when he moved there. Also, have you heard the internet jokes about Ohio? Like only in Ohio. Like the one that I'm thinking of off the top of my head is like, there's like a video and it's just like normal cats and they show like cute videos or pictures of cats and then they do cats in Ohio and it's like the most disturbing (laughs) up pictures, images and videos of cats that are out there or like weirdly photoshopped pictures of cats. Is Ohio like in the Florida of the Midwest? Yes, 100%. I've literally, I don't think I've ever even been to Ohio I don't think I have either, but I'm just referencing the funny internet jokes surrounding Ohio. So I guess. So this is in Ohio. Yes. Only in Ohio. (laughs) Ashland, Ohio is where he moved to and he was from Mansfield, Ohio, but he had only been in Ashland for about two months and he met Jane Doe right when he moved to Ashland. And he said the reason he moved to Ashland is because he was running from a child support issue in Mansfield. He has three children, I think. And How old is this man? I think he's in his late 30s, early 40s. This had happened years in the past, but he had three children. He wasn't paying child support. He was arrested a few times for domestic violence against his ex-wife and her sister. I guess he strangled his ex-wife and pulled a knife on her sister. And I'm not 100% sure the ins and outs of that. I didn't really look into that, but I know that there was some issue there. Um, And it sounds like he had no concrete plans to end up in Ashland, but he just kind of ended up there. And he didn't have any place lined up to live. So he found some abandoned townhomes, broke into one of the houses, and he had been squatting that home since he arrived in the area. And that's the home that they rescued Jane Doe from. By the laundromat. Yes. Okay. So the detective in this interview was trying to establish like motive, intent, the fact that there was no consent from Jane Doe, and just kind of the details surrounding it. So the detective asked Sean how he and Jane Doe came to be in that townhome. And Sean told a story that very much did not align with reality. Not in like a spacey way, but like I do think he's crazy, but I don't, I think he's just of sound mind, but just evil. So he told police that he and Jane Doe had been getting really close lately and even talking about getting married and how Jane, he invited Jane over because she was starting to get cold feet about the marriage and he was trying to save their relationship. So he explained that Jane had talked about a guy named Daniel and Daniel, I guess, was one of her ex-boyfriends from like five years prior and it made Sean jealous. And he was explaining that he thinks the intent of bringing up Daniel was to make him jealous and to try and push him away because she had cold feet. And he says that he lost it when he heard this. And he didn't really expand on that right then, but he then went to on to explain that Jane and him both really wanted to wait until they got married to have sex. But when 
he invited her over to his townhome. They started fooling around and it started to go too far and that Jane told him no, but that she didn't really mean it and that she just regretted having sex with him and that's why she called 911. Yeah, because women just call 911. Yeah. What? It doesn't make any sense. And why uh, were the doorknobs removed, bro? Y- yeah. And she was literally tied up. She was Why did you have a taser in your bed? <laughs> Things ain't adding up. The Sean. math ain't mathing, Sean. Yeah. So first of all, this is a straight up lie. They were not in a relationship. Jane was not exploring marrying Sean. And at no point did she ever consent to any type of physical relationship with him. Sean lured Jane to this house by telling her that he had clothes he wanted to donate to the Croc Center. And when she came inside, he overpowered her and assaulted her for over 48 hours. And she has injuries to match. Uh, The interview with this guy is one of the worst things that I've probably ever listened to. Like the detective is trying to explain to him that assaulting people is wrong. And Sean went on a rant about how he did Jane Doe a favor by assaulting her. He said that she was so obsessed with sex and he just freed her mind from the shackles of thinking about it all the time. Like, (laughs) like he recognized that she didn't want to do it. He acknowledges, yes, she told me no, but her desire didn't match her words. Yeah, when women say no, they really mean yes. Yeah, yeah. And he admits to abducting her, but he says he did it because he cares about her. <laughs> like, put me in, coach. Put me in a room with this man. I want to I wanna teach him a thing or two with my fists. Because but- right now, I mean, if I was just going to go out on a limb without knowing anything else, like, I don't know them, I don't really know this story, but if I'm just going to base it off of my own experience and, like, stories that other true crime stories that I've heard and the relationships and the dynamics between men and women, what I'm assuming happened is closer to what she said, which is that she met this guy, she was probably really nice and polite to him, and then he tried to take things too far, so she tried to distance herself. She was like, eh, he's taking this another direction that I don't want to go, so I'm just going to stay friends. I'm not going to cut him off completely, because if I do, he'll go psycho. Turns out, just distancing him herself at all and saying, no, you can't, my phone number made him go ballistic. Yes. When I first heard this story, too, I, I was kind of, like, inclined to think that it was somewhere in the middle, probably. Like, maybe they were, like, thinking about it. And it doesn't excuse what he did at all. Like, But, like, the more you learn about the things he says and and what he does later, the more you're like, oh, no, this guy straight up is delusional. And he really made this whole story up in his head. There really was nothing there in between him and Jane Doe. And He's he just fabricated it. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about marriage. <laughs> This is insane. Okay. Yes. And if you listen to the interview, Sean is just very like calm and relaxed and really nonchalant about all the atrocities he committed against Jane Doe. And I I won't go into detail about what he did to her because it is truly horrific. But he tied her up. He assaulted her. He used objects. He beat her. And at some point during the interrogation, after admitting that he abducted and raped her, he goes on a rant about how Jane still loves him and he just wants the best for her now that all of this is over and that he he thinks that she should forgive him because he just wanted to help her. Like, I, I'm I'm pretty sure he's like textbook narcissist. And around the same time, while police are questioning Sean, Jane is in the next room telling her story. Detectives realize there's a connection between Jane, Sean, and a third person who has been missing for two weeks. Her name is Elizabeth Griffith. Elizabeth also often spent time at the Croc Center and lived in Jane Doe's same apartment building and was generally part of Jane's circle of friends. Uh, Elizabeth had some mental health struggles. She suffered from paranoid schizophrenia with mania, but she was extremely outgoing and made friends with everyone. She had a therapist who oversaw her day-to-day needs, and although her family lived in a different state, she kept in contact with them. 
The first person to notice that she was missing was her therapist, and Elizabeth had last checked in on August 15th, but by September 17th, her therapist went to her apartment to do a wellness check, but there was no sign of her there. Police did file a missing persons report, but they didn't organize a search party or anything. Like, they didn't look for her. They just said, okay, she's missing. We'll keep a lookout. I think the therapist or her family contacted local news organizations, and one of them did a local story in the area about her disappearance. But it was just one story. But her story didn't get a lot of attention, and it seemed like police just believed that she ran off or maybe even committed suicide. Um, so they weren't, like, super concerned about her being missing for two weeks because they just figured that was the case until they learned about Sean's connection to her. So hold on. Elizabeth lives in Jane's same apartment building and also frequents the Croc Center. Yes. Okay. Every time they asked him about Elizabeth, he would change the subject, tell them he didn't even know who they were talking about, or even start admitting more things he did to Jane Doe. And this was a red flag for the interviewing detective. It seemed like he was hiding something. And also this directly went against the information they were getting at the same time from Jane Doe because Jane was telling them they all knew each other. And he was saying, I don't know that. Yeah. Sean was insistent that he didn't even know who Elizabeth was. Eventually, Sean did admit to knowing and even hanging out with Elizabeth on occasion, but he he just like refused to give more information until the detective mentioned something about searching the house. So the detectives had basically gone into the townhome to rescue Jane Doe and to arrest Sean, but they hadn't done any searches outside of just a general sweep um, because they were waiting for search warrants. So they didn't go into the house and search the house yet, but Sean is under the impression that they already did. The detective mentioned something about when we search the house, we're going to find something. Are we going to find something? And Sean says, so you don't already know? Oh, no. Yeah. And and the detective is like, what do you mean? And then he just refuses to elaborate. Sean refuses to elaborate about it. At the time of this interrogation, Sean thinks the officers have already searched the entire house and have found what he's hiding. But in reality, the police are waiting for a search warrant. And at this point, Sean thinks the investigator is playing games with him about what he are, what he knows. And the detective is just becoming increasingly frustrated by Sean dodging questions. Is Elizabeth in his freaking townhouse? Yes, you'll find out. No! Yes. Oh. Okay, so I'm going to play you uh, a short clip. Where's she at? She's uh, pretty. No more problems. You don't have to cry no more. So Sean says she's free. No more problems. She won't have to cry no more. And he talks about how Elizabeth came to him crying about how she wishes she was just dead and that he set her free. So at this point in the interrogation, the detective is getting just more and more frustrated and kind of losing his cool a little bit. And right there, he, he played his cool pretty good. But the further the investigation or the interrogation goes on, the more frustrated the detective is getting. And Sean is feeling cornered, which is bad for getting more information. And right now they think Sean has something to do with Elizabeth's disappearance because of the things he's saying, right? So they send in Detective Kim Major. Kim Major is a woman, and immediately there's a shift in how Sean starts communicating with her when she asks questions. So she kind of allows him to feel as if he's in a position of authority, and then he just kind of spills everything when when she gives him that platform or that pedestal, right? And I, I just think it adds to the reality that Sean is a violent misogynist. And he thinks that he ha now has control over the situation and he's almost bragging to Detective Kim Major. It's very strange, but she is, she is a great interrogator and she, she knows how to work the situation. And I'll, I'll play you a little bit of, of how she sets up the conversation with Sean. So here's the deal, Sean. And I'm, I'm Kim. You can just call me Kim, okay? 
I don't think we can really be defined by a little block of time in our life. All right? We can make mistakes, and we're not going to be defined by that. Sometimes things just happen. So isn't it kind of interesting that she kind of talks to him like he's a child almost, but that's the thing that makes him feel like he has power over her, that gives him the confidence to feel like he can manipulate her or or take authority in the conversation. Like she's talking to him like he's a five-year-old who did something stupid, but that gave him permission to be the authoritative figure in the room almost. And yeah. I didn't see it that way. I understand that perspective. I would have to think on that more. When I was listening to it, what I was getting is that she was being very simple, right? Yeah. You you interpreted it as like she's she's talking to him like he's a child. When I was listening to her, it felt like she was trying to dumb herself down. Yeah. So that he wouldn't feel threatened by her. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like she's kind of being a mommy figure. Yes. To be like, it's okay, we all make mistakes. And is like kissing his boo boos, mm-hmm. which I'm not even gonna lie. Whenever there, I've I've done something similar where when I'm interacting with some men, in order to avoid confrontation or aggression, I dumb myself down so that they don't take me seriously and they will leave me alone. Yeah, no, I to try and like defuse them. I think it's a combination of honestly, I think it's a combination of what we're both talking about. She's treating him like a child, but that makes her look dumb to him. But that makes her look like simple to him instead of internalizing that as she's talking down to me. I don't know. I guess it must speak to his specific brand of mommy issues because as we get into this, you learn that he does. He has mommy issues to the max. That makes sense. To the max. And in fact, I guess I can go in a, a little bit to that right now. Sean's mother had his older sister when she was 13 or 14 years old Okay, by like a 24, 25 year old man was the father of his older sister and him. But she had his older sister first. And then a few years later, when she was like 16, she had Sean, same father. The father was in and out of their life, really inconsistent. Uh, His mother had to work as a bartender and probably a sex worker. I think she was a stripper at one point just to get by. And she was a child herself when she had Mm -hmm. these children, right? Like thrown into motherhood, completely emotionally immature. She put her kids in a lot of bad situations, probably because she was a child herself and didn't know how to be a mother. I couldn't even imagine. Yeah, I, I've heard, I know several people who they're the product of um, teen motherhood. 13 is especially young. Like mm-hmm. that is, that's a middle schooler. Yeah. You know, I can't even imagine having your mom be so, so young and you can't even blame them for being immature. Like 13 year olds are supposed to be immature. Yeah. So like you can't even blame them for not being a good parent because no 13 year old would be a good parent. (laughs) No, but it sounds like she was physically abusive. She was emotionally and verbally abusive. She did not know how to take care of her kids. And Sean's older sister did a lot of mothering to him. Sean's father and mother were married when she was around 13, 14. I think her parents signed over the rights to to this grown man who had sexually assaulted her and gotten her pregnant. But he was violent with her and she started drinking like as soon as she was out of the house. So she was drinking probably while she was pregnant and was a drunk and eventually filed for divorce from her abusive husband. And Sean resented her for that. He resented his mother for getting rid of their abusive father? Yes. 
course. And it okay. probably spiraled them into like a really uh, precarious state because he was their provider and they didn't have that anymore. And so she had to she had to work weird hours and work weird jobs and put them in dangerous situations. Like I I think he resented her because of that too. But yeah, he has he has mommy issues bad. Yeah, she doesn't do the phones and no exchange of phone numbers. She can't come in her apartment. She's she's pretty strong on that. Let me ask her. This. It makes me wonder what she's hiding from as well. Bible versus all of her walls and everything. But it's a she can just walk in to where I'm staying with no problem. It's okay. Like it's like I can't go in her place. Which is fun, but it's, it's so she sees it okay that she could come with me. So Sean is outlining right there that he thinks it's hypocritical that he can't go into Jane Doe's apartment and she doesn't even give him her number. And she has Bible verses all over her walls and she must be hiding something if that's the case. But she's she's allowed to go into his apartment where he's staying to get the clothes. When she came in your house, do you think there's any part of her that thought she would have sex with you? That's an honesty question. Do you think Do you think she thought she was going to have sex or do you think... She thought she was helping another human. Be honest. For her sake, be honest. She's torn. A little bit above. Probably. I know she does. Maybe not. Because she's already dealt with a lot the past few days of dealing with the loss. And that's a lot of one reason why she said she wanted to marry me because she is like, oh, we get married, so... So what was Sean's explanation again of why she was at his house? He says, oh, oh yeah. actually, we were in a relationship and everything she's saying is a lie. And really, uh, I had sex with her and it was for her own good because yes, so she needed she was so lustful and obsessed with sex that I just needed to break the ice and get it over with. Yeah. So basically, he's like, we're planning on getting married and she was starting to have cold feet. So I invited her over to talk about it. And uh, when she got there we started like fooling around and we both wanted to wait till we were married to have sex but then we decided that we couldn't stop so we oh, had and sex then she, he claims that she called the police just out of uh regret. guilt yeah regret yeah. yes okay which doesn't make any sense no it doesn't but what actually happened because he took the doorknobs off the doors yes. he had a taser in the bed and yes. she's like buck naked calling the police like yes. i think she's the one in distress yeah <laughs> I think a logical person might surmise the same. But when they're interrogating him, they discover that after they catch him and he's in their interrogation room, that there's another young woman who also frequented the, the Croc Center who went missing a couple of weeks ago that he and Jane were friends with and they don't know where she is. So they think that he had something to do with it. Yes. So he has like this martyr complex. Like he hurts people and he thinks he's doing it for their own good. That's dangerous. That's scary. It's super dangerous. And Sean has hinted a few things. He said a few weird things, but he hasn't outright said anything. And Sean thinks they already know. They already know where Elizabeth's body is because she's in the house. And the investigators haven't searched it yet, so they don't know she's there. So he thinks they're kind of playing with him, but the investigators are really just in the dark. Detective Kim Major decides to be bold and ask Sean to take her to Elizabeth's body. And Sean replies, you've already found her. I might not be able to take you to her, maybe someone else or others. 
What? That's what he tells Detective Kim Major. And that kind of throws her for a loop. So she's she's like, how many others are there? And Sean takes it back and he's like, I don't know. There might not be any. So right now, Sean is talking about Elizabeth. He says that he should feel sad for her, that she's a screw up, that there's something wrong with her. Right. And then there's more. She's mentioned that. about elizabeth right there so Mm -hmm. just just to clarify he's he thinks that people who have mental illnesses are a waste of life he is mad that elizabeth and other people might be collecting government welfare assistance and he thinks that they're incapable because they don't have jobs he thinks that elizabeth should have been taken out back or dealt with a long time ago all the while he doesn't have a job. No. He's squatting in other people's homes, and he has been for probably the better part of five, ten years. And mm-hmm. he's killing people. He's raping and killing people. But he thinks... And he's not paying his child support. He's not paying his child support. But he thinks the people with mental illnesses are a waste of life. <laughs> I, I cannot... I can't even, like, wrap my head around how fucking awful you have to be how detached from yourself yes he's a legit narcissist how detached from yourself you have to be to think this way he goes on like a weird tangent and detective kim majors doesn't know what he's talking about so they're trying to get information about elizabeth trying to redirect him back to elizabeth because they're like something is going on here we know for sure now but we just don't know what exactly and sean starts offering information about somebody else So he starts talking about how I loved her and that she's buried in the woods, but he's not talking about Elizabeth and Kim Majors knows that. And so she's like, wait, wait, who are you talking about? And Sean explains that he's talking about a woman named Candace Cunningham. Sean and Candace were in a relationship for a while and Candace even set her Facebook relationship status to married in December 2015, but I don't think they were legally married. She unfortunately got caught up with drugs and she had her two children removed from her care and it was during this season of her life when she met Sean Great. People who knew them as a couple described them as inseparable but volatile and they were together for about seven months. In December 2015 and into probably the beginning of summer 2016 is when they were together. It's so weird that this is so recently. Like when you tell this story, I'm thinking like, ah, this was 20, 30 years ago. But you're talking like 
Nope. This was like six years ago. Yeah, this was like six years ago. So Sean tells Detective Kim Major that he killed Candace, that he loved her and he still loves her, but that he killed her. And he starts to like cry a little bit, like very strange. Like one of the first times he shows emotion is is when he's talking about how he had to had to kill Candace. He had no choice. He says that a few times throughout the interview. And that one of the reasons he killed her is because she always talked back to him. And it came to a head. They got in an argument in the middle of the night and she threw a bag of tobacco at him and she raised her voice and he stops crying at this point when he's telling and he gets really like almost in like a bragging tone while he's talking to detective majors that he told Candace if she did it again, he would take her ass out. And he ended up uh, strangling Candace to death. In June 2016, he dumped her in the woods after strangling her. And at the time, they were staying in an abandoned house in the woods somewhere. I I don't remember exactly where. Somewhere between Ashland and Mansfield. He kept her body in the house, but the next night he drug her into the woods and dumped her and then lit the abandoned house on fire to try and hide any DNA evidence. And Candace was actually never reported missing because she told her mother that she had met the perfect guy and that she was going to move to Ashland with him. So as far as her mother knew, she moved with Sean and was just living her life. And she knew that her daughter had drug issues, like she struggled with addiction. And so she also figured that some of that was happening. She never met Sean, so she didn't even know who she would call about it. She just figured that her daughter had just went on and was living her life somewhere. Yeah, because nobody is like, oh, I haven't heard from my daughter in a while. She's probably been murdered. Yeah. So is Candace, is she like patient zero? Is she like the fir- his first victim? <laughs> I wish. Actually, I don't wish that. What? Um, the- I don't wish any of this happened, but she is not the last or the first He does say later in the interview that the reason he didn't kill the mother of his children, his ex-wife, is because it would have been really obvious that he wanted to, but everybody would have known it was him. He's finding surrogates for the women in his life that he hates, and he's specifically targeting people who are vulnerable, who can't be traced back to him well. And as you learn as the case goes on, he just is getting sloppy. So at this point in the interview... Detective Kim Major asks Sean, is there anyone else she should know about? And Sean replies, how many more before I get a lethal injection? And so the detective is like, okay, so there's more for sure. Like, 100%. So he's a serial killer. Yes. So she she realizes at this point, he is a serial killer. She's, she's dealing with a serial killer and how many more are there? So she's trying to get all of it out of him. And- Imagine being police on this case and... At first, you think it's just, like, a somewhat simple case of, like, okay, this woman was abducted, we rescue her, we take the guy into custody, and we're going to put him in jail. You And then they start interrogating him, and they're like, oh, actually, he's also linked to this other missing woman. Yikes. And then they find out about Candace, and he starts spilling the beans about another woman, and they're like, big yikes. And then he's like, how many more do I need to tell you about? And they're like, holy shit, we yeah. have a fucking serial killer. So, so yeah, you're you're absolutely right. They thought this was an open and shut case, very straightforward. And they untangle this giant, terrible, awful, disgusting web. And and I mean, this is all happening in the span of a few hours. Like at 6 a.m., it, it took them 20 minutes. So around like 6.30, 6.40, they apprehended. Sean took him to the police station. And then it, at this point, it's like probably not even 11 o'clock in the morning. And, and they're getting all of this information. 
after Detective Major consoles Sean, like, don't worry about any of that right now, because he asks about how many more before I get a lethal injection, right? So she consoles him, is like, don't worry about any of that right now. We're not talking about that, and you don't have to worry about it. Sean admits that Elizabeth is in the house where he also kept Jane Doe. He says that her body was locked in a closet that had been duct taped shut. Sean tells the story of how he invited Elizabeth over to his house with the intention of, in quotes, putting her out of her misery. They played a board game together and then he fed her and then he tried to strangle her. But Elizabeth fought back, which was surprising to him. And then he explained how he tried to use that moment where she fought back as like a teachable moment. So he was like, see, you're not suicidal because you fought to live. Isn't this so great? I helped you solve a problem. Like, that's literally how he frames it. And Elizabeth was obviously fucking angry and terrified because she's (laughs) like, you just, you just tried to strangle me. And, and so Sean goes in to try and give her a hug because he's like, I helped you solve this problem. And Elizabeth pushes him away from her and is like, get away from me. You just tried to hurt me. And that was the trigger for him is how he describes it. That was when he's like, are you kidding me? Like, I just helped you solve this problem and that's how you treat me. So he explains to the detective that Elizabeth had nothing going for her, that she was unmarried, that no guy would want her because according to Sean, she was unattractive. Like, this is important in any way whatsoever. She has no reason to live. Men don't find her attractive. She might as well just end it. That is how he frames it. I am dead ass serious. That's how I I know men who phrase it exactly like that. It's like, get over yourselves. There's so much more to live for than your shrimp dick. Like, I... <laughs> I really... Not, not to them. Not to them. They're like, no, everything revolves around my penis. Yes. And it is infuriating. Um, but also is when he decided to put her out of her misery, in quotations, he had learned that she was collecting government assistance. And so she was a drain on society. And, and I... Notice how he like has to dehumanize these women to justify killing them, or does he kill them and then have to deconstruct their humanity to justify his actions? I I mean, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that he probably views all women exactly the same, which is that he does not see them as human. Yes, I agree. It's around this time uh, when the police finally get their search warrant, and they search the house, and they find Elizabeth's body right where Sean said it would be, in the upstairs closet. And Sean absolutely tortured her before and after her death. It, he is- After her death? Yes. Why? I I don't think, like See, you said, I don't think different. he sees them as human. That's different. Okay, because that, that's a whole, psychologically, that's a, that's a whole other thing. Because, like, if you just want to kill someone because you want them gone- you kill them and you you move on. You get rid of the body, you hide the body, whatever. But if you're saying that he killed her and then he, like, desecrated her corpse or, like, did things after she was dead, that's a whole nother thing. Yep. Right? Yeah, yeah I agree. He has hatred for these women that he's doing these things to. Yeah. But police searched the house and ended up finding... Another body in the basement of that same house. And they found uh, the body of 43-year-old Stacy Stanley, who had been missing a week. Like I said, Stacy was a 43-year-old mother of two who had struggled with heroin use in the years prior to her murder. But in the last six months before her death, Stacy decided to turn her life around because she learned she was going to be a grandmother. So she was six months clean at the time. 
She had a job. She was working on mending relationships with her kids and family. She was doing great and her family was super supportive. Stacy was driving through Ashland when she got a flat tire, so she pulled into a gas station and called a family friend to come help her change the flat. And that's when a man approached her and offered to help change it. So when the family friend arrived, the man who had offered to help had already changed the tire and Stacy was getting ready to leave, but the family friend made sure Stacy was okay and then left her at the gas station. The man who offered to help was Sean Great. Stacy and Sean went inside the gas station where she bought him a cup of coffee to thank him for helping her out, and she also made a call to her son to tell him that she was okay. Sean invited her to his place, aka the place he was squatting in, the same place where Elizabeth's body was in the upstairs closet, and Sean explains that he and Stacy ended up kissing, and he tried to initiate sex, but Stacy told him no, and that made him angry. Sean asked Stacy, would you have sex with me if I had $40? And Stacy told him no. And that like wounded his ego, I guess, because for a lot of reasons, because he was being rejected. But he specifically said that she was playing innocent in quotations when he knew that she wasn't actually innocent. And what does that mean? <laughs> like she was lying to him about her true nature, trying to con him for money and that she took advantage of his kindness for changing her tire by not giving him anything in return and mm -hmm. and then sean accused stacy's family friend who came to check on her of being her sugar daddy like he just completely made up this scenario in his head and and stacy was like that is not how it is at all he is he is like a family friend right and what finally set him off is he learned that stacy got an assistance check every month how does he f even find that out? Does he just, just straight talk? up ask them? I don't know. I don't know. It must be important to him. So he probably frames the conversation in a way that pushes towards that, getting that information. But he felt like she was a hypocrite. Like So he's a Republican. <laughs> it's just, it's a very weird fixation. The thing tying all these women together that he's murdering is that they get government assistance and he hates that. Well, it's that plus he feels like they're lying to him. Like she's a slut, but she's going to pretend she's not. For what, right? Like he's, he feels entitled to sex, to, to her body. He doesn't view her as like an autonomous and human there's being. There's nothing that men hate. There's nothing that men hate more than when a woman who sleeps around won't sleep with them. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. They take it really, really personally. Sean says that they had only been together an hour before he killed her. So let me make sure I get this right. So Stacy has been has been missing a week. Yes. Elizabeth at this point had been missing for two weeks. Yes. So like every week he's picking up a new woman and he was losing it. So Stacy's family reported her missing the very next morning after she didn't come home, but the police refused to file a missing person report because they knew she had substance abuse problems. She had been arrested for mm -hmm. drug use in the years prior, and police told her family that she probably relapsed and was on a bender, so there was no need to exhaust police resources looking for her. I... It makes me so fucking angry. Like, I am... I am angry. Stacy's family was not convinced, and they made posters. They went door-to-door -door asking if people had seen anything. They contacted news stations, and they begged police to look into some abandoned buildings around town, but police refused. And then eventually her family found her car parked off of 9th Avenue, just a few blocks from the home where Sean, Sean killed her, with her phone and wallet still inside. So Stacy's family took this as proof that she must have been taken against her will because even if she did relapse, she would have taken her wallet with her money inside and her phone. But yeah. police still refused to look for her. They're just like, meh. We see that a lot. We see that a lot with anyone who's had any kind of a history or criminal history with 
with substance abuse or who has mental health issues or who has ever run away before, the police are like, no, we're just going to wait and watch and see if they come back because we don't we don't want to waste all of our time and effort and money and stuff. Yeah, which is insane. This is like the most important thing that they should do. But huge props to Stacy's family because they gave a shit. I know it's like the bare minimum, but I feel like we don't see that a lot where people who have substance abuse issues have families that are willing to just love them completely. And I'm really sad that it didn't turn out better. And so far with all of these women, the like with Stacy, with Elizabeth and with Jane Doe, the only thing different between the three of them was that Jane Doe kind of submitted and accepted the reality. Like she didn't fight back anymore. But with Elizabeth and Stacy, they fought back. Uh, uh, Stacy maced him during a struggle. Wow. That is that is so upsetting. I've tried to explain this to people before where fighting back isn't always the answer. Mm-hmm. Like there's so many cases of like sexual assault where fighting back is what gets you killed, but submitting is what makes it just get over faster and then you can get away. Mm-hmm. In this case, similarly, like... Uh, Depending on who the perpetrator is, like fighting back might scare them off and they'll run away and then you win. Mm -hmm. Or it could be the opposite where fighting back just angers them and they get upset and then they murder you. Yeah, you're exactly right. I feel like a lot of it does depend on where you are, though, too. Like Sean had all of these women in really vulnerable places and places where he controlled it, right? Like he, they weren't in public. This is just an opinion. This is not professional advice. If you are in public, fight like hell. That rule, no second location, no second location ever. Mm -hmm. Do not let them take you to a second location. It's better to die in a parking lot than die God knows where. But if you are totally at their mercy in the privacy of their home or in a non-public space, I don't even know what to do. Do you fight back? Do you just totally just accept it for what it is and hope that it's over and that they don't kill you? I don't know. I honestly don't know. So he recalls, because uh, Detective Major was like, is there anybody else I should know about? And he says, well, this one took place sometime in 2007 or something, but he doesn't remember the victim's full name. And he says he's hesitant to give her this information because he doesn't, he feels that it will incriminate himself because there was such a big jump between this victim, who he says was his first in 2007, and then the women in the past month that he killed or attempted to kill, right? He thinks it'll incriminate him because there were more in between? Yes. He he thinks that that is what Detective Major will insinuate from this, and she is correct because that's exactly the case. But he offers it up anyway. He says that he remembers the victim's name was Dana. So Dana was a magazine saleswoman who was raising money for college, and she had two children that she left with their father in Texas, and she would call in to check in every week. So apparently Dana had taken Sean's mother's money, but didn't follow through with the magazines. And Sean's mother complained about it often. Like I said, wishing the wrath of God upon the woman who stole her money, wishing death upon her. And and, and Sean ran into her in public and she tried to sell him magazines. So Sean was like, oh, this is the woman. Like, I I can conduct vengeance on her. So he kind of like he he explains how he went along and was kind of like flirting with her and she was flirting back and he invited her over to his grandparents' house where he was staying at the time. Okay, hold up. Just one second. Okay. There's no way this man is attractive. I have not seen a picture of him, but everything you've told me about him, how he's like a squatter, he probably does not even have bed sheets. How is he confidently flirting with all of these women and getting them to go back to his hole in the wall apartment? So by conventional standards, he is 
attractive. He is? Yes. Um, okay, so that's how he's doing all this. Yes. Because people look at him and they're like, he's probably fine. He's actually a really attractive guy. Yes. he's He looks okay. like an all-American guy. He's got big blonde, a oh, big blonde hair. <laughs> he's got big blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> he's a southern woman. <laughs> no, big blonde Titty hair. straight to heaven. Titty straight to heaven. Is that what you said? <laughs> No. I said the hair is teased. <laughs> I thought you said titties straight to heaven. That too. No, um, he's got big blue eyes and blonde hair and he looks younger than he is. And Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, he looks totally normal. That is upsetting. It's very upsetting, honestly. This is why rule number one, don't trust any man ever. This is a very simple rule. Thank you. I will follow this. <laughs> So yeah, as soon as Sean figured out that Dana was the magazine saleswoman, he wanted justice. And in the interrogation, he kind of talks about like his mom wouldn't shut up about it. And so he thought that he'd do something about it. Like he kind of frames it that way. And then he says like that it just made him angry that she was still trying to con people, that she was a hypocrite. Like it started with that. I guess. So he invited her back to his grandparents' house and he was living at his grandparents' house because he was fixing it up for them. And I don't know if his grandparents had passed at that point. I'm not 100% sure what the situation is there, but he was living at his grandparents' house. His grandparents were not there. And they got back in the kitchen and he was flirting with her and kind of insinuating that they might sleep together and he got her in a vulnerable position and then he kind of cornered her and was like so you're the one who stole my mom's money and she was like well I don't know who's your mom that's what he said she said to him and at that point he started to beat her and then he strangled her to death and he put her in his grandparents basement He said he shoved a couch in front of the basement door and then he invited all of his friends over for a bonfire and they had a big bonfire in the backyard. So while Dana was in the basement, he was partying up with his friends in the backyard. When his friends left, he took Dana's body into the woods and dumped her. Um, And this is, Dana is supposed to be victim number one, like this is his first kill? Yes. Okay. Dana's husband never filed a missing persons report. When asked about it, he said that he figured she just moved on with her life because that's the kind of person she was. So nobody knew that Dana was missing and they found her body but didn't know who she was. She was a Jane Doe in a cold case until Sean's confession in 2016. DNA evidence then corroborated Sean's confession. So they looked into it and found that he was telling the truth. The final person that Sean admits to killing was not a case that he offered up. In fact, the police decided to ask Sean if he ever had contact with this particular victim because it had been a case, a cold case they were working on and didn't have any answers. And before they could even tell Sean her name, he already knows who they're asking about. And I want to I want to play that little clip for you. Correct me or, or change, but, you know, you'll, you'll fix it. There's a case from out in the county. Uh, meaning that we found a girl. And we're trying to see if you'll be honest, if that's something you have something to do with. We're asking for that. A lot of time has been put into it, and we don't know. Rebecca Lacey. Yes, sir. I had a problem with her once. I met her. She got violent with me. I swear I've been, like, angry and bitter about her. 
Did you hear that? He said she got violent with me? Yes. So, Detective Kim Major is like, we've been working on this case. We have no idea. It's from out in the county. Can you, uh, we want to see if you'll help us, if there's a possibility that you know. And without even knowing anything about the case, Sean asks Rebecca Lacey. And sure enough, that is exactly who they're talking about. Rebecca Lacey and Sean were both prostitutes for a time and struggled with drug use. So Rebecca's family knew she was struggling and and they tried to help, but she just wasn't ready to go to rehab. So she came home every now and again, and sometimes she would bring Sean with her. So Sean met her family. Sean says their relationship took a turn when Rebecca stole $4 from him, $4, and denied it when confronted. And Sean says that she hit him. Then he killed her. So we don't know exactly what happened. We know what Sean is telling us, but we also know that he's not super forthcoming about the reality of what happened or why it happened. No, he has not told the truth about any of these women. (laughs) Yeah. So when they found Rebecca's body, they didn't do an autopsy. They just surmised she had died from an overdose. They knew she had trouble with the law. They didn't see any outward signs of physical trauma. So they were just like, oh, she died from an overdose. But they went back and Sean did strangle her to death. And there was evidence of that, but they just didn't really care. She was a druggie. So it was fine that she was dead is is how it is framed, right? How many murders do you think have been ruled overdoses when they weren't? I think so many, personally. The craziest part about Rebecca's unfortunate story is that Rebecca's dad thinks Sean is a great guy and that he didn't kill her, even to this day. And he knows that he is capable of murder and murdered a bunch of other women? Yes. Rebecca's dad thinks that Rebecca's drug dealer was the one who killed her if she didn't die by overdose. So at first it was, no, 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 Rebecca's just a druggie. She died by drug overdose. And then it turned into, well, she actually is a victim of homicide. And so Rebecca's dad was like, well, then it was probably her drug dealer that she that she wronged or like conned out of money or something. So Sean's first victim was Dana Nicole Lowry. His second victim, Rebecca Lacey. His third victim was Elizabeth Griffith. His fourth victim was Stacy Stanley. And the last victim that he didn't get to make a victim of homicide was, I think, going to be Jane Doe. I think she was going to die. And those are all of the murders that he's admitted to, but it is very possible that there's more. So on the Monday, the 7th of May, 2018, Sean Great was found guilty of the murders of Stacy Stanley and Elizabeth Griffith, and he was sentenced to death. On the 1st of March 2019, Great pleaded guilty to the murders of Rebecca Lacey and Candace Cunningham and received a life sentence with no parole plus 17 additional years to life for other charges. Six months later, Great pleaded guilty to Dana Lowry's murder and again received a life sentence without parole plus 16 years in prison. Sean Great still resides in Chillicothe Correctional Institution, where he will live until his execution. In December 2020, Great lost his death sentence appeal at the Ohio Supreme Court, but has recently appointed a new lawyer to reopen his death penalty case. As of right now, his death sentence has been pushed back to March 19th, 2025. I also wanted to use this episode as, I guess, a platform to boost a nonprofit organization called TakeBackTheNight.org. It's the Take Back the Night Foundation, and it basically is an educational tool, a resource tool for anybody who's been sexually assaulted. They just have lots of resources, and their main goal is education. So a lot of one in three women are victims of sexual violence, and one in six men experience sexual violence in their lifetime. And their whole goal is educating people on what it is 
how to prevent it, how to spot it, and what to do about it. So if you go to takebackthenight.org, you can learn, you can volunteer, and you can donate. Or you can use it as your own resource if you're experiencing sexual violence. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Crime Soup Podcast. Be sure to find us on social media and let us know your thoughts on this case. You can find us on YouTube and TikTok at Crime Soup Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Crime underscore Soup. We also have a website, CrimeSoupPodcast.com, where you can listen to all of our episodes and buy your very own Crime Soup merch. As always, we'll see you next Tuesday. Stay safe and bon appetit.